Well, we're looking at another part of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, uh, starting at chapter 26 as part of a series leading up to Easter, covering events that happened up to and including the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's been said of Jesus, and rightly so, that few individuals leap out of the pages of history with more profound irony attached to them than he. Think of it. The Gospels note that Jesus fed others, but he went hungry. The Gospels note that he gave rest to others, but he grew weary. The Gospels note that Jesus paid taxes, but he was a king. The Gospels note that he cast out demons, yet they called him a devil. The Gospels note that he would not turn stones to to bread for himself, but that he gave his own body as bread for his people. The Gospels note that he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and yet he gave his life a ransom for many. The Gospels note that he died the death of a sinner, but that he came to save his people from their sin. Nowhere is this irony more clear than this prelude to his death. Little did his enemies understand that by putting him on a cross, By executing him, he would inflict defeat upon his enemies. So what we have before us as we come to chapter 26 is a little bit like the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games where the words are spoken, let the games begin. For thousands of years, God had been predicting through his prophets of the day when the Messiah would arrive and the Messiah would die. But now here in these verses, the games have just begun and the first shot has just been put and the first javelin has just been thrown and the first hurdle has just been jumped and we come to chapters that are holy ground. We have only 16 verses to cover this morning which begin with and end with the wicked activity planned against him, which both flank and contrast and bring to light a beautiful thing that happened to him in the middle. First in verses 1 to 5, let's note how the plot to kill Jesus was hatched. Now while the focus in these verses is upon behind-the-scenes plans of the chief priests and the elders, we also need to keep in mind that in verse 2, Jesus tells us that he told his disciples for the eighth time in the Gospel of Matthew that he was going to die for their sins. Now, you can trace all of those instances in Matthew's Gospel for yourselves and you might be able to grasp why he did that. It was, of course, to prepare them for this event so that they would be forewarned and forearmed. He told them ahead of time, I'm going to be killed. 
Now we've just come from a number of weeks in Matthew 24 and 25 in which Jesus has been speaking to his disciples of the glory he will have when he comes in the clouds to judge the world. And before the words have left their ears, he's now telling them that in a couple of days' time, he's going to be put to death. J.C. Ryle says this, the connection of these words with the preceding chapter is exceedingly striking. Jesus has just been dwelling on his second coming. He's been describing the last judgment and all its awful accompaniments. He's been speaking himself as of himself as the judge before whom all the nations will be gathered. And then without a pause, without an interval, he reminds them that he must die as a sin offering before he comes as king. That he must make atonement on the cross before he takes up the crown. But that's not all here, is it? While we note all this in verse 2 was... Within the plan of God, verse 5 tells us it was within the plan of man. So while Jesus is speaking about his impending death, according to the will of God, the Jews are planning a death of their own making for him. And the contrast couldn't be more striking. Jesus says, I'll be delivered up at the Passover festival. While the men who want to deliver him up are saying to each other, we can't deliver him up at the Passover festival. This is something Peter picks up in his sermon on the day of Pentecost when he said this Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross and you put to death. Here's an intersection between two kinds of planners that could never have come off unless the sovereign God was involved. Both had input. But God's sovereign rule won out. Both are true at the same time. It was the will of man, it was the plan of God. We don't have one and not the other. And it's vital to have a grasp on that because it's vital to understanding what the cross was about. The cross was the provision of the Father's love. The cross was ordained by God because the Father loved us. And it was the only way by which we could know the salvation that we so desperately needed and don't deserve. But the cross also expresses the wickedness of man who rejected the very one God sent to save them. One writer puts it this way, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for the money. Not Pilate for fear. Not Jews out of envy, but the Father for love. And so in verses 3 to 5, we see the details of this cowardly plot of the religious leaders of Israel. And though that wickedness was overruled by God, it's still culpable. We'll all give an account one day for our wickedness. And these men will too. The evil of the Sanhedrin's action is apparent. They're doing this behind closed doors in secret. They're planning the execution of a man who has not been tried and found guilty. There's no court in any land in the world that would recognise this as appropriate judicial procedure. And so the Jews, the Jewish leaders, are responsible for what they plan. 
And though they were wicked and greedy men, though they had their own unsavoury motive for doing what they were doing, no doubt these men were so deluded or so ignorant as to enough to think that what they were doing was the right thing. You know, we can all point fingers at the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. But it's also times, aren't there, when you and I think we're doing the right thing. But it turns out to be seriously wrong. Our task is not to judge them, but to marvel at what God did in tying together the threads of his own will and that of the religious leaders to bring an outcome that is so much greater than we could ever have imagined in the death of his son. Second, in verses 6 to 13, let's note how the action to anoint Jesus was noted. In these verses, we come across something completely the other end of the spectrum. While the religious leaders are talking about putting Jesus to death and Jesus is telling this to his disciples, this woman is thinking about his death but not in the same way. It happened as Matthew tells us in the home of Simon the leper. It might strike you as ironic that a leper has a home. But let's assume that Simon was an ex-leper. It's quite possible that he was one whom Jesus healed. And into his home enters this woman who comes and displays an act of pure and loving devotion to Jesus, an anointing of a different kind. Now it was cultural to anoint guests with oil as they reclined at the table, but this isn't that. And this woman whom John tells us in chapter 12 is Mary, the sister of Martha, As Mary pours out this perfume, she's pouring out her heart. She's filled with genuine love and gratitude and devotion and it's entirely possible that she understands something about what Jesus is going to go through the next few days. More than the disciples understand. Why was that? Maybe because she spent so much time listening to Jesus at his feet. And so her action is one of devotion. And in response, Jesus doesn't say to her, now Mary, just hang on, you know, that's not necessary. You're going too far. He received her extravagant act of devotion to him. He spoke highly of it, even though the disciples give a disappointing response in verses 8 and 9. They're vocally indignant about what has happened and A response indicated a deficiency in the way they assessed Mary's actions. They misjudged her heart. They couldn't read her motives. They didn't understand the significance of the action. And to their shame, they spoke too soon and out of turn. But even as we see this sad scene play out, we learn this, that nothing else we do matters unless we rightly understand the importance of Jesus. And that Mary understood. She understood the importance of Jesus in a way the disciples themselves were struggling to grasp at the time. They were outraged. That money, all that waste, 
Maybe this had been a family heirloom. Who knows for how many generations this bottle had been sealed. And as long as that bottle was shut, that perfume could last a long, long time. But she took it and she broke it open and she poured the whole thing on Jesus. And the disciples are shocked. This is over a year's wages. Think how many poor people could have been helped if we could have only sold that instead of wasting it on Jesus. Now I must say it's very easy to pick on the disciples at this point. Very easy. Just like they picked on Mary. It would be very easy for me to be super spiritual and say, oh, how could the disciples have done that? But I'm rebuked by them. You know, at least whatever Jesus had taught them about the poor, at least that stuck with them. About caring for the poor and the lowly and the needy. It was ingrained in their hearts and their thinking. And if I'd been there, I don't think I'd been thinking about the poor. I don't think enough about the poor that that should ever have entered my head. So the disciples may be a one step ahead of me. But as genuinely concerned as many of those disciples were, save Judas, for the care and the needs of the poor, their response to Mary's need is still shallow, it's still superficial, isn't it? Their concern for the poor is not sufficiently anchored in their love for Jesus. For how could you possibly waste anything on Jesus? How could you waste anything? Nothing given to Jesus is wasted. You can waste your time on him. You could waste your strength on him. You could give your whole life to him. You could waste your life for him. And it would be welcome. And Mary understood that in a way the disciples didn't. And it's a beautiful thing to see her pour out her heart as she pours out the perfume. No gift is too great in such a response to the love that Jesus had for her. Divine love which not only gives everything but is content to be unrequited. You'll never outgive the love that he gives you. Can't you hear David's words as he pours out the water that his men gave to him? I will not give a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Jesus was worth it. And she worshipped him with what she had, perhaps the most valuable thing that she owned. The disciples are shocked, but Jesus is pleased. She performed this, she did this, she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for my burial. This is an amazing statement, isn't it? You know, criminals weren't anointed in Jesus' day. A nice upstanding citizen who died would be prepared and anointed with expensive incense and perfumes and ointments and then would be buried in a tomb. But common criminals who died, especially the death of the cross, would simply be heaped into a common pit which would be covered over with dirt and rocks and rubble. 
No anointing. Did Mary understand what she was doing? Or was she doing something that she didn't understand? Well, listen to this. Mary of Bethany was maybe the best listener that Jesus ever had. And this may well have been her thought in what she did. She may have been thinking to herself, this might be the last opportunity I get to do anything for Jesus. It went according to his own predictions. One commentator says this, the evangelist here makes it clear that she had an intuitive appreciation of the significance of Christ's death which the disciples were yet to grasp. She knows that he is ready and willing to die as a supreme act of love for his enemies and she has rightly reckoned herself and her family to be in that group. And so she pours the fragrant perfume, her most costly possession, over him as though she were anointing him as her king. You see, we have a picture here of Jesus not only being prepared for burial, but we see a picture of true worship, giving the best we have because he did that for us. Third, in verses 14 to 16, let's see how the decision to betray Jesus was motivated. Look at the contrast between Mary's loyalty and then Judas's disloyalty. This passage hits like a bolt out of the blue, even though you know how the story goes. While Matthew hasn't given much away about Judas in the Gospel, in verse 15, he does give a hint about the motivating factor in Judas's actions. That it was greed. We find Judas asking the chief priest, what will you give me to betray him? And of course, this request comes in the context of the costly gift given by Mary to Jesus about which Judas had just complained. And so if greed is at the heart of the motivation, then surely this must be the most acute and direct warning against the love of money that is ever given in the scriptures. If the love of money was close to the heart of what Judas did, I can't think of a greater warning to us all to beware of the love of money, especially when he did what he did for 30 pieces of silver, the average Old Testament price for a slave gored by an ox, or that which Zechariah received in our reading from chapter 11. Judas sold his master cheaply. And one cannot help but think of Psalm 41 verse 9, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. What Judas did is a permanent reminder to us It is a dire thing to seek opportunity to sin. To plan to sin, to prepare to sin is a terrible thing. To carefully plan to rebel against the living God is a soul-killing thing. That's why the psalmist prays, Lord, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Judas is a case in point. He never recovered from this. He never made it to repentance. His example warns us against ever taking this attitude. 
Oh, I can go ahead and plan to do this sin. I can always repent later. You can't do that. Because sin hardens your heart against God. Repentance is a grace. It's a gift. Who are we to say that we will have the grace of repentance when the time comes that it's needed? Judas is a standing warning against that kind of thinking. So as we note the contrast of Mary's loyalty against the blackness of Judas's disloyalty, we note that our allegiance to Jesus is an aspect of saving faith that is essential for effective service of Jesus. So you can have great many privileges as Judas did. You can sit under great teaching. Judas heard the Sermon on the Mount. You can see his works firsthand. Judas saw every miracle that Jesus did except the ones only Peter, James and John saw. Judas saw resurrections. He saw healings. He saw how the Lord Jesus responded with the mastery of the word of God to the greatest teachers in the land. He lived with the man day by day. He saw the perfection of holiness in Jesus and he still betrayed him. If that doesn't scare you, or as some often say, if that doesn't put the fear of God in you, I don't know what will. No man ever had greater advantages than Judas. And yet he betrayed him. Isn't that a warning? Judas is a man who took a step from which he could never, ever reverse. In sharp contrast with Mary's loyalty stands Judas's disloyalty. This great encouragement to go forward in devotion and this great warning about warning about sin and avoiding it at every cost. Well, what do we say then to all this? How do we conclude? What do we say to the evil of these religious leaders plotting to bring Jesus down? What do we say to the devotion of Mary giving as she did to lift Jesus up? What do we say to the greed of Judas planning to give Jesus away? See the contrast between all these events all telling us something about the nature of man and his heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is evil. People who say, just follow your heart, have never taken that into account. The heart is evil. And by this the writer is turning the searchlight back to you, the reader. Where are you in this picture? Think of these responses to Jesus in relation to the profession you make, what you claim for yourself about who the Lord is to you and how that claim is tested by your deeds and by your words. The very things that will either accuse us Or excuse us on the day when all is brought into the light. 
We started thinking about irony. Here's another one. Though he was hated and rejected by the world, he's the only safe ground on which you can stand. Is he yours? Prove it. Make it so. Are you his? Be thankful for his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come with thankful hearts for him who loved us and gave himself for us, we recognise, like the disciples, we're a mixed bag all over the shop. And though we see your hand at work in tracing the scriptures and seeing all things come together, we also see the evil of men at work, evil hearts. And we hear too the words of Jesus. She did what she did for my burial. And wherever the gospel is told, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Help us to sit with this passage and to hear the warnings, but also to love the Lord Jesus and be found in him on that last day, not trusting ourselves, not that we could ever, ever provide that obedience, but trusting him who did that for us. Lead us as we think further along these chapters in the next few weeks to a greater knowledge and a greater love for him who loved us. We pray in his name. Amen.